Welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lelchuk. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Now, if you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much, much more. Remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. Here's Daniel Lelchuk. On today's program, we're speaking with experts of Japanese literature and culture, Dennis Washburn. He's translated some of the most important works of Japanese literature into English, but it's his rendition of the medieval novel, The Tale of Genji, that has been a defining accomplishment, one that the Washington Post called fluid and elegant. Far from limiting his expertise to the scholarly written word, he serves as professor at Dartmouth College, where he's known for engaging his students not just with the history of bygone eras, but with the emotions and contexts of today. To talk Japanese literature, the art of translation, and whatever else may come up, Professor Dennis Washburn is here. Welcome. Thank you very much. What is a translation? Is it just words or is it culture? Uh, it's a little bit of both. It's, uh, it's, that's a complicated question. I mean, it's a bit of an erasure. Uh, you're replacing someone else's words with your own. It's a deep reading. Uh, and it's a very deep kind of engagement interpretation. Um, so, uh, you know, translation is a complicated business. I mean, you are sort of not presenting the original. You're a mediator or medium to people who cannot read the original language. We're talking about a book primarily here, The Tale of Genji, written about a thousand years ago. It's more yes. than a thousand pages long. That's right. Uh, it, I, I, I've talked to... Um, contemporary, well, obviously contemporary since they're friends of mine, uh, Japanese folk who have uh, never picked it up, who are afraid of the old Japanese. That's right. Uh, what, what's the deal in terms of accessibility? Uh, what, how do we even begin to approach it? Well, over uh, since it's been, it was written over a thousand years ago, I mean, this has been an issue for, for a number of centuries. It was written in the court language. It was written in the vernacular of the court. But the language itself became rather difficult for Japanese people to read within a couple of hundred years. The actual manuscript that we have was put together in the late uh, 12th, early 13th century. Uh, and by that time, people were writing fan fiction. Uh, they were getting bits and pieces of the text that would be uh, printed alongside or, or copied alongside of illustrations. Um, so for much of the last millennium, only a small handful of people in Japan actually read or could read the text. There's been criticism and sort of annotations of the text for a very long time, um, but that's people got at the text uh, through other media, uh, through, through plays, through um, through uh, visual arts, through poetry, uh, through dress. So there's a lot of ways of, there's, there's sort of all kinds of uh, subsidiary goods, if you will, that were associated with the tale of Genji. Uh, parodies uh, were very popular in the 17th and 18th century of the text um, because those were accessible. Um, they even had in the 18th and 19th century, there were these, uh, these uh, 
how do, how do I even describe them? They're, they're like little dressers, dresser drawers. Uh, and they had, there were 54 very slim uh, drawers in each one of these cases. And they contained a small uh, visual accompaniment to the text itself. And these were used as bridal gifts, trousseaus. So people didn't actually get to the text because of the difficulty of the language. I mean, it seems so foreign to most Japanese. Even now, um, it's through anime, through uh, manga, that is comic book versions. This is how a lot of people read the tale of Genji. Um, I remember going to an all-female troupe called the Takorazuka a few years ago to see their staging of the tale of Genji. It's this kind of very strange kind of Vegas showgirl thing, but all of the characters are, all of the actors are women. And the key actors, the real stars, are the women who play male roles. Called the uh, male roles. It's called the Takorazuka. And I'd never been there before. I was kind of nervous about going because I thought I, I might like it. Um, and actually, I did like it. Uh, but uh, it, it was a very different take on the story. So in a way, um, I think my translation follows a long, long uh, sort of history of rereading, misreading, uh, sort of uh, sort of annotating, changing the text. I mean, that's one of the reasons it's such a central text to the culture, because it has been, it's sort of wormed its way into all of these various different media. Um, so it's central, but yes, a lot of people in Japan still come to these texts uh, either through modern translations into Japanese. Several major writers in the 20th century, like Tanizaki, did their own versions of this, um, or they actually look at English versions. Um, that's actually been the case, and I've had um, scholars in Japan who've actually looked and discussed my work, um, you know, with me and to sort of get the sense of what they've taken from from my interpretation of it. So before we get into the uh, details about translating, about about how you make this accessible, uh, first give us a, a, a baseline, a background about this. Uh, uh, some people call it the first novel. I understand that's uh, that's in dispute. It is written by a woman. Uh, uh, um, you you claim all of it is written by a woman. Uh, others have claimed that perhaps parts are, are, are not, but uh, we can get into that as well. So what are we talking about here? A great work of fiction? It is a work of fiction. And in many ways, the reason that people debate whether it is a modern work of fiction has to do with a lot of the techniques that are involved. Um, the characters, um, the sort of depth of the psychology of the characters, the way in which we see their motivations, more importantly, the way they interpret each other's motivations is what makes it uh, a really sophisticated work. Uh, there's a kind of, I know this is going to sound a little highfalutin, but there's a theory of mind in the text. In other words, the, the characters themselves are always judging their motive, the, each other's motivations, their language changes. So it's an extraordinarily sophisticated work in that regard. It's also complicated by the fact that you have a narrative voice that jumps in at times, sort of judging the characters, particularly judging the, the main protagonist, Genji. Uh, and that uh, you don't see that kind of writing really until you get, honestly, you don't see it in a, in a full-blown form in the West, really until Cervantes. And the kind of deep psychological um, de depiction of people's motives it's really, you don't get it till 18th and 19th century in Western fiction. So this is why things get a little confusing when you talk about a genre like the novel. Uh, it is a monogatari. It's a telling of things or matters that are going on in the world. 
and it has a kind of realistic cast to the writing, um, although the, the culture is is so different from from what modern J Jap J Japanese readers would be used to, let alone what Western readers would expect, that it's always had a kind of exotic flavor to it, which I think is unfortunate. I mean, it really is uh, a very gritty, in some ways, very robust, realistic telling of the world of the court in the in the early um, 11th century. Um, and so that's that's why this debate happens. It, it's con it's confusing because this this idea that it was a modern novel or a precursor to the modern novel, in some ways that idea doesn't pop up until the late 19th century. And the reason for that is Japan has uh, rejoined the, the global economy at that point. Uh, it has become an imperial power itself in East Asia uh, after its opening by the US in the 1850s. And so as Japan was modernizing, the Japanese government, the authorities were very clear about what they wanted to do in terms of projecting an image of Japan to the world. And so they're looking around, and I'm not exaggerating this, um, actually political leaders were very concerned about how Japanese culture was being viewed. Was it, was it equal to the West? So they're looking at late 19th century Europe and they're seeing Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and uh, you know, they're looking at Dickens and they're looking at all of these great writers and the esteem with which apparently they feel that, that, that these writers are being held. I mean, after all, Disraeli was a novelist, not a very good one, but he was a novelist. And so there, there was a stature that, that, that puzzled them a little bit because historically this kind of fiction had always been seen as a, something for women to read, uh, certainly something that women wrote. And so they, they were a little puzzled by this, but they're scrambling around and they're saying, well, do we have anything that even remotely uh, could come up to the standards that they were accepting from the West about what uh, literary achievements were? And there, there it was. They had it there all along, this gigantic work. It's longer than, it's longer than War and Peace. Um, and they thought, okay, this is, this is our Tolstoy. This is the work that we can we can set alongside Shakespeare and Dante or Ovid or the, pick your pick your canonical writer, um, and that mattered to them uh, because they were really striving to present themselves uh, as equal to the West culturally and therefore equal to the West politically economically. So it's a funny I mean it's a really strange a uh, way in which politics and which geopolitics have crept into the judgment of a work of literature. And it kind it, it distorts how we look at it. My feeling is that you need to look at actually what's going on on the page and the techniques that she's using. And those techniques um, took a long time to develop in Japan. There were a lot of, a century and a half before she wrote, there were all kinds of fiction, diaries, journals, of course, poetry. Poetry is part of the text. It's a major part of the text um, in in the tale of Genji, and so, um, you know, when you when you look at it from that point of view, it's an extraordinarily sophisticated work of fiction of narrative, uh, and yet it has its own set of origins, and I think it has to be respected on those grounds. And I don't want to just try to view it through the lens of the novel, but it's hard to escape that given the fact where we are, where we're positioned as readers, and the fact that yes, a lot of her techniques. Um, sort of, you know, they, they, they're there centuries before we see similar sorts of things in Western literature. You mentioned geopolitics. I'm thinking about the relationship between a country's reputation 
in terms of geopolitics and the art it produces and exactly. sort of Japan searching for that thing that would put them alongside England, Russia, That's right. Italy. And uh, there it was uh, written 800 years before. Well, uh, it's, inter you it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because if you go back to the Sochi Olympics in Russia, their opening ceremonies, you'd have thought that Tolstoy was, you know, he was he was Putin's best buddy. Um, all, all of these, all of these great composers. Of course, it's, Russia has this great uh, artistic uh, history, and especially its modern history. But they only trot it out when it's kind of convenient for them. You know, it's it, it's so interesting because uh, certain people we think uh, define the place, and sometimes you have the place searching for uh, a redefinition, and and they reach back to the familiar names that's right and and there they are in in sochi uh, opening up the olympics that's right paint a picture of the heian period this is a, a kyoto yes this is a hard question we don't have time for the whole answer sure. but what was what was society like then uh what this we're talking a thousand years ago medieval japan and kyoto well it was of course it was the emperor's city it was the it was the capital city uh the the if you look at the tale of genji you get a very distorted view of what um, you know, of, of what was going on in the society as a whole. It's basically focused on the very hothouse environment of the imperial court and the aristocrats who are striving for power uh, in that court. Occasionally, you do get pictures of the every, of everyday people. These are, these are depicted as sort of crude peasants who, you know, they don't have any real sense of taste or things. But when they see Genji or they hear performance or they overhear a poem, it's so beautiful that even these rustic ignoramuses can understand the beauty of it. I mean, that's generally how the lower classes are treated, if they're treated at all. Um, it is a hothouse environment. Uh, the, the imperial court was a very complex place it was a it was a very rational in some ways very modern bureaucratic structure they had borrowed it from the tang dynasty so as a political uh, as a as a political economy and the organization of it uh again it was very rational but at the heart of it was a lot of political intrigue among different clans or families the fujiwara clan was the most powerful and within those branches of the family the northern branch was the most powerful and what what mattered among these clan politics was proximity to the throne. And the best way to get proximity to the throne was through family and blood alliances. So what happened over time is that you have this very, if you look at the palace grounds in the north, which was situated at the northern end of the, of the city of Heian or Kyoto, if you look at that, uh, the outer part of it, the sort of public uh, and sort of uh, uh, or administrative elements of this very rational, but then the inner palace is sort of like the topkapi palace. I mean, it's a harem, and all of these families are trying to get their daughters. Daughters were, on the whole, more valuable as political capital than were sons. They were trying to get um, their daughters into the palace in either some sort of service, uh, like a, a, a handmaid or something like that or they were consorts, concubines, wives of some sort to the emperor. Now, this matters because um, it's, I don't think it's in, inappropriate to, or inaccurate to describe these, this, this kind of harem structure as a set of salons. And almost like sort of 19th century Paris salon, what you wanted to do was create an atmosphere that was interesting and enticing. You're not going to produce an heir or a spare if you can't get the emperor to 
the, to the boudoir of these of these women, of these consorts. Uh, and so it was a very hyper competitive um, atmosphere, and it explains the emphasis on aesthetics. So sometimes when you look at the tale again, do you think it's this kind of fantasy world of people making poems and being interested in incense and drawing and all these art, artistic things? But in fact, that was a historical necessity at that time. You needed it was it's sometimes referred by historians as marriage politics. You needed these. You needed to get the attention of the emperor. And in fact, in the tale of Genji, you have a number of scenes, a number of chapters that deal specifically with that. The Eowase chapter, chapter 17, which is a contest of illustrations, is exactly about that. The emperor, the new emperor loves painting. So now you have two factions in the court trying to bring painting into their, their daughter's uh, salon and, and getting the best artists around her so that you draw the attention of the emperor and he wants to be there. This was also true of aristocratic families at large. Murasaki Shikibu was, uh, the author was, in my opinion, I mean, there's no 100% certainty about this, but in my opinion, I think there's good reason to believe that she was brought into the empress Shoshi's um, coterie, if you will, her, her, her household, precisely because people were reading the early chapters of this. And Murasaki Shikibu was an unusually uh, well-educated woman. Her father was uh, an expert in Chinese, so she knew Chinese, which was generally not, um, women didn't study that. It was considered unfeminine. But the women wrote in the vernacular, which gave them a big advantage over a lot of the male courtiers who had to do a lot of official work in Chinese. So it was the women who were producing much of the vernacular fiction. But Murasaki Shikibu also had access to Tang literature, to the, the Indic uh, text. She was extraordinarily well educated. And so she herself in her own position sort of exemplifies the nature of the court. It was hyper-political, but it was also hyper-sexualized because of marriage politics. And it was as a part of everyday life, they, women, aristocratic women, needed a, a group of women around them who could help them with writing poetry, could help them with ritual, who could help them uh, with all kinds of matters that would essentially create an alluring place for, let's say, a well, a high-born aristocratic man or even the emperor to come to their, uh, to, to come to their location. Um, if I can just say that this is getting a little into the weeds, but the marriage um, marriage customs for the high aristocrats, it, it, the term used is axora local. That is the man, the household was where the woman was and men would then come. They would, might have a residence elsewhere and would come to, to visit their wife. High, again, high aristocratic males oftentimes had many, many wives. It was a polygamous, that part of the society was polygamous. So to go back to your original question, it doesn't really give you a snapshot of what Japanese society was up and down uh, in the early 11th century. What it gives you is uh, a snapshot of this at the very top part of aristocratic society, the one that is really sort of vying, the, the, the groups that are vying for power around the emperor and the throne. How did you get into this in the first place? You've, you've obviously spent many years studying literature and studying culture of Japan, but was this book always hanging over you? 
uh, in the back of your mind and you always thought to yourself, but one day it's going to come to that? Uh, I never thought it would come to that. Uh, it was kind of accidental, uh, like a lot of things. Um, it, 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 Taylor Genji was always there. My uh, it, it, In the early part of my career, uh, most of my colleagues would have considered me basically someone who focused on 19th and 20th century. But even in my earliest uh, critical writings, scholarly writings, I had to deal with works like The Tale of Genji because you couldn't understand that transition for in the late 19th century from the long tradition of, of fictional work in Japan to the emergence of what we would consider uh, modern novels. And that took place really in a period, in a really rapid period from, let's say, the 17, mid or mid 1870s to the like 1910, 12, the end of the Meiji period. So the great writers uh, of that period in Japan, somebody like Natsume Soseki, who's I think many Japanese would consider their greatest novelist of the 20th century. He emerged in that period and they were looking at Western novels as the, as the model. They wanted to model their writing on that. So they turned, of course, to the tale of Genji as, as a source work for that. Because of that, you can't avoid it. I mean, the Genji is one of these works that if you're if you're studying, you know, if you're studying modern Western literature from any point after the 18th century, you're still going to be you're going to have to deal with the great artists of the great writers of the late medieval Renaissance period. You're going to have to sort of look at, you know, given how Im impactful somebody like I mentioned Cervantes earlier, how impactful he was across Europe. Uh, and how his work sort of changed the tradition really radically. Similarly, the Japanese writers at this time were looking back for models within their own tradition, but they were, you know, they were also looking to the same writers I just mentioned a little bit ago. You know, they were looking at the Henry Jameses and the Tolstoys. Tolstoy was a major figure in Japan. Um, I mean, a real sort of, uh, I don't know, a, a sort of an, a god, if you will, of literature for many writers. And so that you've got this push-pull. So you can't understand that unless you understand how those writers were negotiating between this long past and then the sort of modern writers from the West that they were also uh, interested in emulating, pushing back against sometimes. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where my interest grew because you have to deal with this text. Um, but doing the translation, that was totally accidental. Uh, the publisher, Norton, they, they sort of contact, this has been about 20 years ago, they said, well, would you be interested in doing a, a translation? And I thought, uh, it took me about a year to answer that question. I said, I got to think about this for a while. And it literally, I did have to think about it. I had to, um, because it's it's such an enormous work and it is difficult. Um, so 20 years later and the, the critical edition, which is what they first, you know, uh, contracted me to do is finally coming out in January. The, the translation came out, the standalone uh, trade publication came out in, 20, in 2015, but the actual book that I contracted to do is only just now finished. Ah, so that will be coming out well, uh, in January. If for anyone or... interested in doing the translation, the standalone translation is fine. I think if you're interested in doing in what nerdy academics want to say about the book, I certainly urge you to look at the critical edition. And, and that will be a whole separate book of, no. of commentary or it'll be embedded it's embedded in the thing it's the heaviest book uh i again i used to think war and peace was hard to handle uh, i have some, I, I, because i thought 
uh, this book was heavy. I was carrying it up the <laughs> stairs <laughs> earlier, and and I was having trouble going getting up the stairs. I know. I I have like carpal tunnel. I mean, my it hurts all the time, literally. <laughs> um, but there there is you can you know you can do Kindle if you want. I guess. Um, I always wonder why they don't. Well, I understand it. It's costly. I would like to have seen them break it into more than one volume, just to be kind to people. Uh, but that's not that's not their their series, this critical edition series, it's always one volume. And so that's that's how we're doing. You should see the English the English volume or the English Bible, the King James Bible, that's even bigger. So that makes me feel a little even better. Bigger. Makes me feel a little better. <laughs> well, th- there was some I'm gonna just just go off and in, into a different direction sure. temporarily. There was a um uh, a lot of m- music happening in medieval Japan, uh, as as there was in medieval everywhere actually yeah. uh and you know on this show we we can't avoid talking a little bit about music yeah. period yeah. so um uh, using that as a, a seamless transition uh what <laughs> what role does music play in your life what role does music play in my life uh it's primarily an escape uh i actually i it's it's funny i i can't play uh, unlike you daniel i mean you're a you're, you're a wonderful performer i've been trying to play the piano for like since I, I didn't start until my 40s and so I, I never let people hear me try to play anything that I try I'm trying to learn like right now I'm trying to 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 get through uh Claire de Lune and I would never want anybody to hear hear that uh, other than me because um it, you know uh, Debussy would if he heard if he heard anybody heard about anybody hearing me play he would be very upset let's put it that way on the other hand what I love doing that, even picking it out as bad as I am, and I'm really bad. Uh, it's amazing to see how they get their effects. You think you listen to something and you think, wow, that's really beautiful. And then you start playing it and you, you saw, in my case, I, I kind of destroy it, but in destroying it, I take it apart. And then I think, oh, that's what he's doing. Okay. He's going to that and just little things. And, um, so yes, music has, um, has always been sort of very important to me, but as, as, as truly as an escape, the, the popular stuff I like, I tend to like classical piano, but I also like jazz. And I'm not quite sure why I got into jazz of the fifties and sixties mainly, but I did, I don't know, a long time ago. I, I forget the origins of that interest. So those are the things that I really love. Is Debussy very popular in Japan? Yes. Yes. I mean, he's, uh, uh, he's beloved. For all the reasons you might. And what think. about what about jazz? Jazz is there is a major jazz. There has been a major jazz scene in Japan for, you know, since the Second World War, even before that. Uh, and in Tokyo is still you still have a lot of jazz clubs. Um, it's it's yeah it's in some ways. I won't say it's more popular. That's that would be I wouldn't have any reason to think that. But it's a very vibrant scene. Except you know if you if you go to major cities here. You know, obviously, there's there's a, a big jazz scene in, in a number of cities, Chicago and New, or New Orleans and, uh, and New York. But in Japan, in, in most of the major cities, there is there are a lot of jazz clubs and a lot of performers. Um, there was a very sad story um, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, of a Japanese pianist, the jazz pianist in New York, who, who was un, yeah, he was attacked. And it's very sad. Um, but that's. You know his story is um it's just it doesn't it didn't surprise me you know he he loved you know he grew up listening to jazz he wanted and and new york for him was the mecca and he was making a nice career for himself i hope he'll recover 
but it, I mean, I'm I'm simply sort of pointing that out. It's just it's it's a very uh, it's very deeply embedded in popular culture in Japan. How do you go about teaching this, the tale of Genji, if oh. you teach it at all? What what are you? And I guess the second part of my question is, obviously, not many people are going to read every page, no. every word of this. But what can we do if we want to read a sample? We want to have a sample. Can we read a part and get a feel, have an appreciation? Yeah, I think if you were if you were just to read a section, it would still be a long read, but it would be more like a novel. Would be to read the last nine or ten chapters, the so-called Uji chapters, which deals with Genji's descendants, uh, his grandson, his his putative son. It's not really his son. He was. Um, he was born out of an illicit affair with one of Genji's wives, but Genji adopts, sort of accepts the boy as his as his son. His name is Kaoru, and Kaoru is really one of the great sort of literary creations. Kaoru and the sort of ill-fated love affair, or, or whatever you want to call it, relationship he has with another character called Ukifune, the woman, and she's a. This is a remarkable piece of writing. It it it's the part of the novel that I think is the greatest achievement of the novel. Uh, and is probably in some ways, in terms of narrative technique, the most modern. If you're asking how I teach it, and this goes to the question of what would you read if you were to read this, um, I use bits and pieces in a class. I have taught the, the, the entirety, but it takes a full term to do it. And I have colleagues who teach it at other universities, and somehow they get it in these great books courses, um, and they, they fit it in somehow. Um, but we have very short terms here at Dartmouth, so... I can't really do that. But what I will do is pick parts of it that uh, I think will um, really seriously challenge students to sort of say like, what, you know, WTF, what is going on here uh, with this? So I will pick pieces where I actually, where in the first part of the, let's say the first 12 chapters or so, um, you have the story of Genji as a, in his early life, and it's a series of affairs that he has. Uh, and these seduction scenes are, you know, are, are a little difficult for some of the students to accept. Um, Why? Okay, let me give you one example. In the third chapter, he's been pursuing this young wife. This is all going to sound uh, ridiculous. It would taken out of context. But he, this younger woman married a much older governor or vice governor in one of the provinces because she and Genji had evidently had some sort of relationship when she was serving at court, but he was so far above her in social status that she realized that nothing could come of this. So she marries this older man, they're still in the capital, and Genji comes in one night and basically forces himself on her, and they have they in this fair. So now she's worried about this, and she's thinking, well, the rep her reputation is going to be shot. She's ambivalent about it because to be loved by Genji to be courted by Genji was a great honor, right? I mean, he's the he's the ideal man in that court. Uh, so one night, he finally finds a way. He uses her younger brother as a go-between to find a way back into her household, sneaks in, and she is sleeping. She's in the bedroom, in her bedroom, with her stepdaughter. And the stepdaughter is about the same age, right? She hears Genji coming and she leaves. So Genji comes in. These rooms are dark. You can't see anything. He gets in, starts feeling around, and he realizes he's got he's in bed with the wrong woman. 
But instead of, oops, he sort of starts making things up, saying, oh, you know, oh, mon chéri, you know, it's like he starts seducing her and say, I've, I've, been, I've been longing for you for months, and now I'm finally here. It's just totally lies. It's completely disgusting. Um, a lot of his, a lot of his uh, affairs are like that, uh, where he is basically literally sweeping the woman up and just taking her off into the back room. And students in the hashtag me too moment um, look at that and they say, well, that's rape. And, and and yes, I mean, both in the classical sense of rape and in the contemporary sense of rape, yes, it is. Um, actually, marriage ceremonies, the three nights of marriage ceremonies, was the young man, usually this was with the collusion of the two families, but the young man would sneak in and sneak into the woman's room, sleep the first night, do this again the second night. Third night, sometimes depended on the ceremony, the father-in-law would rush it, would break in and discover this, quote unquote, this has been going on. And then they would have a ceremony and that would be, the marriage would be consummated. Um, so this kind of moving around the polygamous society, the kind of uh, attitudes that men had toward these women is very hard for students now to, or anybody. Um, it's uh, on the one hand, he's consistently presented Genji is as the ideal courtier, and yet the narrator herself is constantly tut-tutting on his behavior. Um, so in some ways, when I teach bits and pieces, I will pick those kinds of episodes because I know that they're going to have the most trouble with that. And so then the question is, well, wait a minute, why is this a canonical work? If this is so off-putting to you, then is, is there anything about the art that redeems it? And in, in my opinion, that's the, the achievement of Murasaki Shikibu's literature, is that you can, you can depict, a lot of literature depicts a lot of bad behavior. But if you get a sense of the inner lives of these characters, if you get a sense of what's lost to them, as well as what's gained in, in their actions, um, if you see a different world. I mean, she's a great world builder. I mean, she, she really does create this very vibrant, you know, very detailed world that you can get into as a reader. Um, and that kind of seductive power, I think, is something that readers have to take into account. What is it, if you're repulsed by that, then you have to ask the question, you know, why? Why is this canonical? Do I need to at least consider that there's something else going on? On the other hand, the flip side of that is if you're seduced by that, if as the reader you're seduced by that, then you need to ask the same question. Uh, and, and early Japanese readers did. Uh, you had a lot of fan fiction during the early medieval period, but you also had this legend of Murasaki Shikibu's damnation. She was in Buddhist hell because she wrote too well. And she effectively seduced readers into thinking that what was, in fact, fiction was real. And that kind of attachment to illusory values would to make somebody else attached to an illusory value was a sin. So there's always been this kind of back and forth, even from the beginning. People recognize that sometimes, you know, what's being depicted here is despicable or deplorable, but at the same time, they also recognized that there was something alluring, extraordinarily artistic and extraordinarily um, revealing uh, about human nature and about human relationships in that art, in that telling. Um, 
So that's kind of when I'm teaching it. That's I'm not trying to. I don't want students to give up their values. Okay, I'm not. I'm not a preacher. I'm not gonna. But I do want them to be. I want them to take notice of what's going on. I want them to deal with it directly. And sometimes, you know, a lot of art is about a lot of very unpleasant stuff. Um, and you can't cancel it because of that. You can't sort of move away from it or avert your eyes because it's not it's not morally upright. I mean, this is a look, this is a problem. This is not unique to this text. But what do you do with, a, you know, this is going to sound like a very overly sim simplistic example. But what do you do with an artist like Lenny Riefenstahl? She was a great director. She was an influential director. People may not want to admit that they were inf influenced by her work. But what do you do? I mean, what does it mean to be Hitler's favorite director? So if you look at Japanese literature as a whole, modern literature, you see a lot of very, again, despicable things being depicted. But some of those some of those writers are truly great artists. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's a conundrum. But I just want the students to confront that. Um, to not confront it seems to me to be a sort of slacking a duty as a professor. A lot of what you've been saying plays into what we do on this show a lot. And uh, recently we were talking with the composer Matthias Pinscher, who was talking about conducting Wagner. And uh, he's, he's, he's yeah. a German Jew. And I, I, I reminded him that, that as much as we like to talk about uh, the uh, horrible writings of Wagner, you know, his best friend was a Jewish conductor named Hermann Levy, who was a rabbi's son. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many things that, are very convenient to superimpose uh, from from now onto the past. Obviously, if you're going back a thousand years, things are going to be more different than they were 150 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. Uh, with Wagner, so uh, what you're talking about is is the ability not just to accept but to separate uh, art from whatever else might be there. The the intrinsic aesthetic value. Uh, in, in this book or in a Wagner opera, uh, if you're able to recognize it, uh, then you're able to appreciate it uh, and, and, and you're there to help put it into context. Right. And, uh, and it's very admirable, I think, that you do that as opposed to, to shirking away uh, because this book isn't, isn't going anywhere. That's right. Uh, I mean, it's like you bring up the, the you know, the, you know, Wagner is a great example here. I mean, you can still see the humanity in his art. I mean, if you're talking about the aesthetic value, you can't separate that from a recognition of this. There is a humane quality to art, even if it's dealing with unpleasant subjects. And yes, this culture is the culture of the Heian court is so different. But I'm not sure. I mean, when you're dealing with, you know, Norse mythology, I'm not sure how familiar that is to anybody. Right. I mean, you have these gods <laughs> running around. Um, it, it's there's always this kind of alien element to these texts. And yet, even if you find these customs um, unacceptable, one point that I try to get them to see is that I think Murasaki Shikibu herself, despite being within that culture, and you can't write out, you can't get out of the box. I mean, you, you're, she's going to write what she knows. But at the same time, you do see the, the kind of critique of the society that emerges. And in some ways, there's... Um, you know, she, she's not going, she's not sort of pushing democratic values. The, the, those ideas are totally foreign to a writer in the Heian period. But on the other hand, you still see sort of fundamental um, 
moral issues that get that get pushed to the front simply by the way the story comes together. Um, Do you think you'd have a harder time defending this if the writer were male? Or did or is your job made easier when, when students when when students say this this really bothers me? Why the hell am I have having to read about a rape scene? Uh, but then they say, well, it was written by a woman, so there's, yeah, there is that. Yeah, I don't. I, mean, I think that would be a total cop out to sort of say. I mean, I think it's interesting that a, maybe a, only a woman was able to write about this at that point, because for some, for men, why would these things be an issue at all? Uh, and the fact is that the great writers of that period were basically were all women. Uh, the author of the the Kagero Diary, uh, say Shonagona wrote the Pillow Book. Um, the, this, this one period there where the, the literature turns in a very interesting way. Uh, and the fact that there are no works like the pillow book or the tale of Genji after this suggests that, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't, I don't subscribe to the great artist theory. It just, it's things came together at a particular moment, but within that society, within that society, it was the women who were the only ones who had the voice by that. I mean, they they had the means the the instrument which was the which were these monogatari these tales to actually explore these relationships. So in some ways, I don't think men would have even you know um, you know men are pretty oblivious about a lot of stuff, and I don't think the courtiers would have even considered this. We have from the period we have reactions of male courtiers. They're sort of dismissive of the fiction, but they're all reading her work. I mean, even in her own diary, when she talks about her interactions with the male courtiers, they're always teasing her. That's probably where her name came from. We don't really know her name. It's Murasaki is the name of a major character in the books. Really, Genji's his 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 top girl. Okay, uh, it's his his number one love, and um, so she's always teased because Murasaki has this special status in the book, and that name stuck. Um, it, it, but when you look at her interactions with her, her real life interactions that she records in her diaries, um, you have to think that the men were interested in this, but they're also in in some ways oblivious to why this would uh, even be important to the women. They're, that this is the way things are. And, you know, Murasaki Shikibu is really sort of exa examining the impacts that this society has on people. And it's a pretty bleak picture. Um the, the Uji chapters, that part that I recommended to read, uh, I think it, if you read it, if you if you're a fan of things like uh, Wuthering Heights, this is your that's your this is that's the part of the novel that you'll be into. It's a very kind of, in some ways, psychologically violent, um, very troubling sort of relationship. Um, and by writing it that way, without sort of hectoring as a writer. Just here, here it is. Here's the story, and it's beautifully constructed. People are going to read this in different ways. Some people will see it as hyper romantic. It's like the misreadings. Oh, since I mentioned Wuthering Heights, you know, it's like Kathy and Heathcliff. Oh, what a romantic! It wasn't romantic at all. That's a violent, cruel relationship. It's really a dark, dark novel. But in the popular imagination, you, you think of you know uh, Olivia de Havilland and and uh, Laurence Olivier, and you you think of how it gets kind of pretty. You know, and you see their ghosts on the moor. Isn't that romantic? Um, and so there's a lot of that misreading that goes on in a book like The Tale of Genji. But the fact that it's there is just as damning of the society as um, as what Wuthering Heights was of 
mid 19th century British society and its and its class, um, you know, its class obsessions. Um, and so I don't know. It's I, I just to go back to your original question. I I, I don't want to go there with say hey, you, okay, chill. I mean, this is a woman writing this stuff. It's okay. No, she was a great artist, and um, she's depicting things that are problematic. Uh, and is there and it it's I know it seems paradoxical to put it this way, but her her characters, even at their worst moments, are redeemed by the art, um, by by the beauty of beauty, meaning in this case, not not sort of aesthetic, you know, aestheticized beauty, but the actual beauty of the form and structure that she creates, the world that she builds. At least it's redeemed by that. That doesn't mean you have to buy to that. It doesn't mean you have a, a moral obligation to like this. I guess what I want, if I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. I guess what I really want people when they read a book like this is the question what it means to be for something to be canonical. And if it's if it's canonical, it means that a book or like you know, any great work of music, any great work of, of visual art, any great work of poetry or fiction, they're gonna be op they're open in an odd way. It's hard to pinpoint why they are, but they're open to all these different interpretations. And that is kind of a mark of what makes something canonical. So even if what's being depicted is something you're thinking, whoa, this is really makes me uneasy, that's okay. If it makes you uneasy, it should, because that's most contemporary students or anybody reading this are going to find it problematic, these relationships problematic. But what's important is that you can imagine that these people, that these characters have a subjectivity and that they're really human. And that seems to be one of the marks. I mean, after all, how close are we to, to Greek and Trojan society? I mean, it's a pretty weird society. And yet you can sort of see the humanity uh, within all of these characters in the Iliad. Um, again, just pick any. I mean, Shakespeare's great achievement is that, right? You, you, you can see the humanity in these characters, even in their darkest moments. Um, and so I, that's kind of what I want more than anything else. I, I'm, you know, if people want to make judgments about that sort of stuff. That's okay. Um, that's that's not my business. But what I want them to do, and I'm not trying to curate it. I just want them to see, uh, in all of these contradictory elements in the book, that there is something going on underneath that sustains it as a great piece of writing comfort or disturb these are the things that we uh, we 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 ask all the time in these parts yeah. is 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 the role of a great work of art to comfort or disturb and uh, uh as far as i can tell it's it's both and it's it's uh, either one or the other uh to to different people um there there are there are many reasons to be comforted by something and disturbed at the same time and uh and and some people listen to music because it's the only thing that gives them comfort. On the other hand, some people want to listen to a piece by Schoenberg that, that leaves them disturbed, and, and yeah. it didn't comfort them, but, but it left them changed. And that's the whole point, is, is that a, a great work should leave you changed in some way or another after you've experienced that's it. That's right. I think that's, I mean, I think that's really important. Can I just say, though, that uh, Murasaki Shikibu was very much aware of that and actually makes that point in her book, in the Fireflies chapter, which is chapter 25. Uh, Genji has um, 
discover the long lost daughter of a close friend of his. And he's taken the woman in and adopted her, pretending that she's a long lost daughter of his. Okay. And so she's, she, you know, so she's in this awkward position that she's a, 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 a stepdaughter or a, a found daughter. But of course, Genji being Genji, he is very interested in carrying on a relationship with her. Uh, he, he, he holds back because she has value as a daughter in political terms. So he doesn't want to really mess, but he's tempted over and over again. And this, of course, is very bothersome. She's being harassed in some ways by her quote unquote father. Um, so in this chapter, she's looking, she starts reading these monogatari, these tales. She's looking for somebody like her. She's looking for somebody that is in a situation similar. Of course, she can't find anybody like that. Uh, and um, she's desperate. She's reading all these things. So Genji will, comes in one day and he sees her reading that he starts teasing her about this. Look, you're not paying any attention to your appearance. Quit reading this stuff. It's all nonsense. And she says, well, he says, it's all just a pack of lies. And she says, well, you're, you're a liar. You're a congenital liar. And you, so you should know really well. So then he goes into a defense of art and the novel, which basically echoes what you just said now. You see the good and the bad, things that are disturbing, things that are a comfort, but you can get at truth even if it's at a fiction. He talks about Holben, these Buddhist parables, right? You can use fiction to get at something more profound and true in human experience. And that sounds great, except as you read on, you're realizing that he's using exactly the argument that we've been talking about uh, to seduce her. That even the argument about, oh, what's the value of literature? And he gives a really convincing case. It's all just another attempt in the story to seduce her. And we know this because two, two pages later, he rejects everything that he just told her. He doesn't want his daughter reading any of that stuff because it might, it might put bad thoughts into her mind, right? Um, so yeah, nag in Japanese, nagasame, a comfort, but also looking for a way out of kind of therapy, or looking for a way to find other people who have shared really traumatic experiences. Murasaki Shikibu was very much aware of that. It's a very, it's a very sophisticated writer, and it's strikingly so. Why should a general audience in the 21st century, 21st century America, or a reader of English in any country, why should they make an attempt at reading part of this? What What is the, the general... You're, you're a general selling point, uh, if you could take the the thirty thousand foot view of this book. Well, uh, again, I mean, I, I do think it's a really brilliant piece of writing. I, I think if I were to say why um, why readers in in you know in the West, particularly in North America and Europe, should read it, is that it would provincialize to some extent the values on which we make judgments about art. That is, you need to see that these that that you can't judge these things simply by uh, parochial standards. Um, that what we take to be universal values, and I'm not arguing that there aren't universal values. I'm just saying what we take to be universal values uh, may may not be. They may be in fact provincial um, or parochial. And that reading across these different cultures is one way to kind of re reach a kind of habit of mind, a kind of habit of reading that makes you more aware of that possibility that you don't have uh, all, um, you know, you don't have all the answers, that there are different ways of looking at it. It's, again, to use your, 
you know, if you're listening to, if you really like 19th century romantic music, and then you're suddenly listening to the atonal work of the 1930s, um, that, that, that's probably a good thing to do. Even if you're not necessarily into that, you should be exposed to it. And even if it just is, is confirms your own taste, that's fine. If you've really come to it in a serious way, that's what matters. Let me be clear about this. I, I think that the value of some a work like Genji it's, is, is its provincial. It's a very worldly kind of writing. It's a very worldly narrative and sophisticated in that sense, but it's very provincial. And there's no reason to read it if you're just going to get something like, you know, some contemporary novelist like Ishikoro or something like that. If it's going to be on that on that register, it's a hyper provincial, but also worldly book. But so is Tolstoy. All right. It's 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 not written as a universal work. It may have universal elements in it, but it's not written at that. It's still a highly provincial work. And I think to be a good reader, you need to recognize that. And and sometimes we take it for granted. Not always, but sometimes we take it for granted. We know what we think is important. We know what we like. What our aesthetic values are, and we're sure in them. But the best thing to do is to test that and see how other cultures deal with similar matters, deal with similar genres. Um, that I think is is the value. So it doesn't have to be Genji, it could be any anything. I just feel like readers do need to read widely across cultures. Um, and, and, you know, I don't defend that as a matter of the content so much as a matter of practice, a kind of reading practice that opens you up to, you know, um, to, to not just to other worlds, but opens you up to your own set of values that makes you kind of more conscious about your own values. Now, I'm I'm thinking about this because I, I work on this all the time with 18, 19, 20 year olds. And they come in and they think, here's I got to have a way. This is there's one way to read a text. They literally come in to, to university with that mindset. And so I'm maybe kind of tilted in the direction of saying you need to read widely. You need to read deeply because if you don't, you're, you're not going to be reading critically at all. You don't read Shakespeare to check a box, okay? You read Shakespeare to learn how to read. And that's, I mean, to me, that's the key thing. So I, I suppose my, my take on this is kind of distorted a little bit by what I'm doing all the time, which is working with, with students and trying to get them to open up. Uh, older readers, I would hope, though, would... I think it's a lifelong kind of habit. You never really completely master it. And so to become a good reader, like to become a translator, uh, that's, it's, it's, there's a degree of humility that's required to do that. Um, I didn't do, I haven't done the definitive version of Genji. Okay. There, there is no definitive version of a text like that. There just isn't. So that's kind of why I would ask people to look at these, these works. Um, you know, and compare them to the works that they've loved or think are important and see what they get out of that kind of comparison. Well, that sounds like a pretty good invitation to me, an invitation to read uh, from one of the great experts, maybe not the definitive, uh, <laughs> uh, but one of the great experts on, on this enormous book that's too heavy to lift up and hold right now, <laughs> the, the tale of Genji. And I do think that a lot of people listening to this would uh, wish to be a fly on the wall in your classes and are envious of your students. So if you ever decide to uh, just make your Zoom classes public, uh, 
let us know and 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 we'll we'll tune in and uh and look forward to more professor dennis washburn thank you thank you very much daniel you've been listening to talking beats with daniel elchuk the original theme music is by ronald barkham the content coordinator is nathaniel mose and doug christian is executive producer we invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.